Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. How well do you know Jesus? Good question, huh? There are some uh, extreme emotions that the meek and mild portraits of Jesus, the popular pictures of Jesus, I call them the meek and mild pictures. We're going to see in him some extreme emotions today that those meek and mild pictures uh, often gloss over or never show. In fact, a lot of the popular ideas about who Jesus is are really distortions. They're not accurate at all. They leave out so much. Among them, they leave out some of his emotions, like we'll see today that they are really distortions and inaccurate pictures of who he really is. We're going to see him today. Let me just set it up for you. Because we have so taken in the meek and mild pictures that sometimes it's a real shock to see him when he's emotional. So let me just set it up for you and maybe take the blunt edge off. He is grieved today and he is angered today, extremely so. Oh, but, but Jesus is sweet all the time. That's what we've been told. He's just sweet and happy all the time. Not so today. People have the idea that Jesus was nonviolent, or he advocated nonviolence. And by that, I guess they mean he's anti-violence. Not really. He often advocated non-resistance to evil, that the best way to deal with it is don't resist it. There are other ways to approach evil. But he wasn't exactly anti-violent. He uh, sometimes would choose not to exercise his power that he could have, but he wasn't nonviolent. And that's very amazing when you think about it, that he would sometimes choose not to exercise his power. It's very amazing idea from the one who is all-powerful that there would be days when he could exercise a lot of power and he would pull back. We're going to see that today too. Just a little word about that around the story that we're going to look at, and we're in Mark chapter 3, if you care to turn there. In the circumstances, the immediate circumstances surrounding the story that we're going to see him emotional today and grieving today, and angry today, around those immediate circumstances, this story will take place on a Sabbath, a sacred day, in a sacred place in the synagogue. So sacred day, sacred place. And you're going to see him exhibit anger on this sacred day in this sacred place. But he's going to be doing it in such a way that he puts his brakes on his power. He doesn't use all the power that he could. Now, this was a sacred day, the Sabbath. It was an untouchable day. It was a day that, while it was a good idea to have a sacred day in the hands of human beings who think they can improve on God's plans, it had become a prison, really. There were so many things you could not do on the Sabbath or limited things that you could do as regards your travel and your working and how you ate and how you cooked and how you washed and how you took care of the kids, 
There were so many restrictions on how you got into the synagogue and how you behaved in the synagogue and how you got out of the synagogue. So the sacred day and the sacred space, while they were well-meaning originally, in the hands of these people they had become virtual prisons. It was agony to live through the Sabbath and agony really to go to the synagogue. We're talking about religion, really. Religion, whether it's in that day or in our day, can often become a major exercise in missing the point. Most religion is. It involves rules, it involves committees, it involves projects and expensive buildings and and wealth and professionalism and, and the emphasis is on size and competition. That's all in the realm of religion and we're going to see that Jesus will reject all of that and sweep it all off the table in a moment. And he'll do it with one of his questions. 295 questions he asks. When he asks questions, it's never because he doesn't know the answer or needs information. He's doing it so that somehow we can be healed when we look at the question that he asks. He'll set all that religion aside with a question. But there's the bigger issue of God's anger, and we will, squirt, we will see it. When we talk about God's anger, some Christians get really squirmy when you start talking about, oh, God is angry. That makes me nervous to think about. We can't have an angry God. The reason people say that and misunderstand the anger of God is because they have a very light view of sin. You see, for many people, sin is a joke. For many people, when we talk about sin, we're, we're, we're not talking about anything all that serious. But when God looks at sin, He sees it as rebellion. He sees it as an act of an intractable will that will not bend in His direction for its own good. He sees sin as an extreme expression of self-centeredness that is corrosive and destructive and more than anything else is like a cancer. Once sin starts, it spreads And you cannot stop it apart from the power of God. It is a flesh-eating bacteria of the soul. That's sin. There's a reason why in the Bible the picture of sin is leprosy. Because with leprosy, it disfigures you. Parts of your features fall off and disappear. But it does it in such a way that your nerve endings are numb and you don't feel anything as the disease progresses. And it steals, it kills eventually, but it kills slowly. Leprosy, sin is like leprosy. And so God sees sin and it angers Him because of what it does to us and the distance it puts between us and Him. For us, sin is the punchline to a good story. It's just a a failure or a misstep, a mistake, or as our politician says, I misspoke. But that's not what it is. Sin is spitting in the face of God. Sin is, 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 is offending His majesty. Sin is angering the king, you see. And we're going to see that today. Mark chapter 3. And he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And we don't know exactly what has happened here, but he's back in a synagogue, the sacred place. And this is another of those cases where Jesus 
and his enemies are on a collision course. You could have predicted, you could have seen it coming when he entered into the synagogue and he enters in with his critics already seated. He's on collision course with these people and the people that he's going to collide with are the Pharisees. Now a word about the Pharisees. The most famous of all the Pharisees, we know him as the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee. But when he was a Pharisee, he was like all the rest. He was a critic of everybody on the planet. Nobody was good enough. It was a very small club. Only they were worthy to approach God with their rule keeping. They were list makers. They were the kind of people that could easily point out all of your sins and missed all of their own, the Pharisees. Paul later on, after he comes to Christ, he will be a person who talks much about grace, about the favor of God, the unearned favor of God. He will be all about inclusion. In fact, in one time, in one place, he will say that in Christ there is neither Jew or non-Jew, Gentile. There's neither male nor female. It, it doesn't matter before Christ. All are equal before Christ. And those are things that as a Pharisee, he never, never, never would have said or believed. But the Pharisees are in the synagogue as Jesus enters, and it says that they're there for the express purpose of watching him closely. They're there to observe his every move. They're observing him very carefully. They are scrutinizing Jesus. They're watching, but they're watching with a motive. And their motive, we're told, is to formally accuse him. They want to see if they can get him in a position where they can make a charge, a legal charge that will stick. And they have good reason to believe that on this day, in that place, on the Sabbath, in the sacred space, given some of the things he's been talking about the day before, that he is poised to do something that they would consider illegal. He's been talking about the Sabbath, in a way that they were not pleased. He's been setting it aside, saying that the Sabbath was made for people. People were not made for the Sabbath. You made a fetish. You made a God out of your day. And so on this day, the next Sabbath day, they're watching closely because they've got an idea that he's going to do something they would call illegal and they can bring formal charges. He sees a man there who has a withered hand. Now, we're not sure exactly how his hand came to be unusable. But it's not functional at this point. It's withered. It, it, he wasn't born with the handicap. The way the, the original language describes it, he was not born with this handicap. So it's the result of an injury, an accident at work or on the farm or a disease it's a neurological problem now, and his hand won't function. It's of no earthly good to him. The real issue is, could what will follow? I'll just burst the bubble and tell you, Jesus will heal the man with the withered hand. The issue is, could what follows have waited for one more day? Hmm. Could it have waited for one more day? Now, there's a big question in verse number 4. Jesus will ask this question as He causes the man to stand and be noticed before the synagogue crowd in front of the friendly people and the unfriendly critics. He will say, get up, 
to the man with the withered hand, and I want you to come forward up to the platform so everybody could see what was going on. And then he will, he will look around and he will ask this question, is it lawful, verse 4, to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? And the question is so difficult for the critics that they will keep quiet and not answer back. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? Now nobody, not even a low-down Pharisee, would advocate doing evil on the Sabbath or any day. A Pharisee would do this, though. A Pharisee would refrain from doing what's good on the Sabbath. They wouldn't go out of their way to do evil on the Sabbath, but they would fall short of doing good on the Sabbath if it violated their laws. So what's Jesus saying with his question? Powerful question. Jesus is implying something that his own half-brother, a fellow by the name of James, who will write a little letter at the end of your New Testament, the book of James, half-brother of Jesus, grew up in the same household, did not believe in Jesus until he saw him rise from the dead, and then he believed his brother was everything he claimed to be. He became a great leader in the church, and he wrote part of your Bible. And with this question, is it lawful to do what is evil on the Sabbath or good on the Sabbath, Jesus is implying what his brother later on will say very clearly, he's saying, if it's within your knowledge and it's within your ability to do something good and you don't do it, then that is evil. In fact, James will say it this way. For one who knows to do right and doesn't do it, for him or her, it is sin. It's clear to everybody as this man takes his place with his withered hand on the platform in front of all, it's clear to everybody in that building that day what good needed to be done that day. That man needs a new hand. That's the, the good that needs to be done. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? Everybody knew what good needed to be done because the man is standing right in front of them and his hand is useless at his side. So it's clear to everybody in the place what good needs to be done, but it's only clear to some, maybe only to a few, that Jesus is capable of doing the good. Verse number 2 in this chapter 3, it says that they were watching him to see if he would heal, if he would violate the Sabbath. So they knew he could do it. This is the second time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is angry. The first time he goes into the temple and he sees them defiling the temple by selling and trading and buying and making a profit and they've turned it into a place of commerce. But worse than that, they've done it in the only place in the temple where people from every nation could come. So that means that nobody outside the nation of Israel can even get into the temple because they've set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, the court of nations, where anybody from anywhere could come and worship, and now everybody from everywhere can't worship because they've got a store going on in there. 
And Jesus is angered and he clears the place out. This is the second time in the gospel that Jesus shows his anger. He's angered as he has the man standing in front of everybody. And he intends to do something very good to the man. And it says he is looking around at them, specifically the critics, with anger. And he's grieved at the hardness of their heart. He's angry, but it's mixed with a deep grief because he can see the hardness of their hearts. That phrase in English says plenty. In English, it implies coldness, hardness of heart. It's a cold heart. It implies cruelty. But to the Hebrew speaker, to the first century Jew who was in that synagogue that day, when he said he noticed the hardness of their heart, it implies to them an, an, an inability to understand God's heart. It's an inability to understand God's heart because you're cold. But that inability to understand God's heart is caused by an unwillingness to hear God's heart. I don't want to hear what God thinks about this man. I don't want to hear about the mercy of God's heart. I, I don't want to be told and don't clutter up my thinking with the idea that God desires to do something good. I told you before the story of the great rabbi. Somewhere a couple of hundred years ago in Eastern Europe, there was a a young boy who was a handful. And his parents would take him to school and he was so rebellious that he would wait until his parents were gone, had left the school, and he would run out the back door. He gave his teachers fits. He would not sit still. He would not learn his lessons. He would not stay in the school. He would run out and play in the woods, play in the fields all day long. Just a step ahead of everybody that was trying to get him to do the right thing. His parents punished him. His teachers fined him. His, they did everything they could think of, and they couldn't turn his behavior around. And then they decided to take him to the great rabbi, who was a stern figure. He ruled the community with an iron hand, the great rabbi did. And so they took him to the great rabbi, and the boy was taken in, trembling. Truth be told, the parents were scared too what the rabbi might do to their boy, but they were desperate. And so they took him into the rabbi's room and they closed the door behind him and left him alone with the boy. They listened at the keyhole. They didn't hear much because the rabbi took that boy and he pulled him as close and as tight as he could. And he positioned that kid's head so that his ear was right next to his chest and heart. And he just held that boy for a long time and let him hear his heartbeat. Then he let him go. The boy went to school, stayed in class that day and the next day and the next day. In fact, he rose to the top of his class and he became an outstanding scholar. And years later, he became a great scholar all because he had heard the heartbeat of the great rabbi. These people that are there that day, they can't hear the heart of God because they don't want to. They don't want to. I don't, I don't want to hear what God wants for this man with the withered hand. 
It's going to violate my rules. So don't clutter up my thinking with all of this. Well, you can understand then the divine anger that Jesus exhibits. Because he desires to show love to this man and heal his withered hand. But he desires to go way beyond that. He desires to, to be able to show his love to those critics, those ones who are cruel and cold. But he cannot coerce them. He can't coerce somebody to turn to him. He won't do that. And so he's angered. How awful it must be to be God and see people that will not because they don't want to turn to him. Even though the Pharisees cannot understand the love of Christ for this man or for them, Jesus has taken them as far as he can. And so he charges ahead and he tells the man, stretch out your hand, the withered hand. Now if it's as withered as I think it is, if it's completely paralyzed, then the man had to hold it up with his other. And the contrast had to be great, right? If he's gone any length of time, and the text seems to imply it's been a long time since the injury, if he's gone any length of time, then that good hand has had to compensate, hasn't it? And now it's stronger, and it's sinewy, and it's muscled, and its dexterity is great because it's had to do the work of two. And Jesus says, hold up your withered hand. And he makes it like the other. And now he's got two that are extraordinary hands. And the people are astonished. And the critics have nothing to say. Because now the man has two completely and extraordinarily healthy hands. Well, what's Jesus telling us with this story? I think several things. We all have dead places in our lives. We all have a withered hand. There's a dream that's died. Maybe somebody killed it. There's an experience that you don't like to visit. But when you do, the wound is fresh. There's a disappointment. There's a separation. There's a loss. There's a relationship that has been fractured beyond repair. And it's dead inside when you come to that. We've all got a withered hand. But you know what this story tells me? That the withered hand is the one that gets noticed by Christ. Look in verse 3. I don't know how many people are in that room. 80, 100, 200, 300, I don't know. But there's a lot of people in that room. And since Jesus is the guest speaker that day, the guest rabbi, my guess is that the crowd is bigger than normal. Maybe it's spilling out the doors like it did on other occasions when he spoke. So there are a lot of people there that day, but he notices the one with the withered hand. The withered hand gets noticed. He knows about that place. He knows. 
Jesus will say on another occasion that it's not the well, it's not the healthy that need a physician. Makes sense, right? But it's the sick that need a physician. And he's the great physician. He, he will say again that he hasn't come for the fully functional, but he's come for those that aren't functional. He doesn't come for those that are self-sufficient, that don't need him. He says, I've come for the hurting. Jesus notices the withered hand. The story tells me, too, that the withered hand is the one that gets examined by Christ. Look at verse number 5. He says to the man, stand up and stretch out your hand. I want to take a good look at it. It's because he's got a plan. Jesus knows all about your troubles. None of it is news to him. The weeping at night, he knows all about that. The frustration... And the sense of powerlessness, the impotent rage that you feel inside because you can't make it right. He knows that. He's examined that. It's the withered hand that gets examined by Christ. Think about a, another person, a woman that Jesus will meet at noontime at a well. She's there because everybody draws in the morning for their daily water. She comes at noon because she's got a past, and she doesn't want to hear it again. So she comes, she thinks she's going to be there alone at noontime, but there's Jesus sitting, waiting on her, because there's a withered hand in her life as well. And when Jesus begins to gently deal with her and peel back the layers and begin to show her healing, she is so ecstatic over what he's done with her and how he's handled her and how he has healed the withered hand in her life and the dead places in her life that she runs back into town and she begins to tell everybody that will listen, I have found somebody who told me everything I've ever done. And he made it right. He fixed it. He knows what's in us. He knows the dust we're made of. He knows the imperfections. He knows the woundedness. He knows the frustration. He knows the loneliness. He knows the regrets. He sees withered hands. And he knows all about them. And then this story tells me too in verse 5 again that the withered hand, listen, it gets restored by Christ. He restores the withered hand. That place, he'll fix it. He'll restore it. If he hasn't begun, he'll begin. If he hasn't completed it, he will. He's got a plan, and his plan is good, and his plan is to restore that withered hand in your life, you see. It doesn't really matter the religious part that they were so focused on. Where you come from, what you know, how you were brought up, Roman Catholic, Baptist, Assembly of God, it means nothing. Those are traditions and those are expectations. He's here to restore us. He's here to restore the withered hands in our lives. Do you grieve over the years that the locusts have eaten? 
Are there regrets? Are there things you wish had gone differently? Are there people you miss? Are there, there are opportunities lost? He's here to restore. That's what He does. He restores. He restores. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.